You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. So, Ireland has its first confirmed case of coronavirus. An individual from Northern Ireland who travelled back there from Italy via Dublin Airport. This country is now one of more than a dozen around the world to record their first cases over the last 48 hours. The virus now has pandemic potential, according to the World Health Organization. Northern Ireland's public health agency last night said the infected Irish patient is receiving specialist care and the agency is working rapidly to try to identify any contacts they had. Dr Michael McBride, Northern Ireland's chief medical officer, confirmed the case at a news conference. Just to confirm that testing of a patient in Northern Ireland has resulted in a presumptive uh, positive test uh, for coronavirus, that's COVID-19. Now, in line with established protocols, uh, the Northern Ireland test outcome has been uh, sent to the Public Health England uh, laboratories uh, for verification. Uh, I want to confirm that uh, the patient is receiving specialist care. Uh, And public health staff here uh, are now uh, working rapidly to identify any contacts the patient has had uh, with the aim of uh, preventing uh, further uh, spread. Northern Ireland's Chief Medical Officer, Dr Michael McBride. We can talk to our Northern correspondent, Vincent Kearney. Vincent, um, I think at that news conference last evening, Michael McBride and his colleagues were um, fairly reticent to give further details in relation to this patient, but some further information has emerged. It has indeed, Brian. I confirmed just a, a short time ago that the patient is a woman. Uh, now, it has been claimed that she may have been travelling with a young child, uh, but I'm not certain that's the case. Certainly, it appears she, uh, the woman was travelling with some kind of a companion, but we're not sure what is that travelling companion was. Uh, as you say, Megan McBride, very reluctant to give any details. They wouldn't confirm gender, they wouldn't confirm age, and they wouldn't say wh- uh, what part of Northern Ireland this woman is from. Perhaps that's because, uh, and my understanding is, this woman initially, I think, may be getting treated at home. It had been reported yesterday she'd been treated in the Infectious Disease Unit at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. Now, my understanding is that the test for this virus was carried out at that unit. Uh, she tested positive. Um, the result has now been sent to England, as Michael McBride has said, for verification. But my understanding is that she was then allowed to go home um, to self-quarantine. Um, I told she is was certainly initially receiving specialist treatment at home from medical experts. Now that of course might could change depending on, on the condition of the patient. But I think that perhaps explains why Michael McBride and the public health agency are reluctant to give details because what they want to avoid is a scene of, of some elements of the media camping up outside this woman's street, outside her house, outside her house, house turning into some kind of a, a media circus. So they want to avoid that, and that's why they will give no details whatsoever. As I say, not even confirming whether or not she lives in Belfast or what region of Northern Ireland she's from. So what then about efforts to try to track down people who who would have been in contact with her as she made this journey back from Italy via Dublin Airport? Um, We understand on public transport, is that right, to to return to Northern Ireland? Certainly, Brian, the clear suggestion is that the woman used public transport. Uh, Michael McBride would not be drawn on that last night. He was asked repeatedly. But if you think about it, Brian, if she had used private transport, that's quite an easy thing to say and would also reassure people. Uh, Asked repeatedly if she had used uh, public transport, uh, the bus or the train. Michael McBride says that we're not answering that. But he did say there's what he called a very active 
contact tracing investigation underway to identify anyone who might be considered at high risk because they come into close contact with this woman. So as I say, if she'd used a, a, a private car, it would have been very easy to say actually there's very little concern because she drove home in her own car. So the clear suggestion is she did use public transport. Whether or not that was the airport bus or the train, we're not sure. Um, the public health agency say they don't want to get into that kind of detail because they don't want to cause any kind of panic. That's why as well, Brian, we're told that she, they don't want to tell us when exactly this woman arrived back from Ireland because then anyone who travelled back from Italy that day, anyone who used Dublin Airport on that day and anyone who used public transport from the airport that day might start to panic, might start to contact their own doctors unnecessarily, and that could overload the health system. Um, now, in terms of, of the efforts being made, Brian, very much a cross-border effort. Um, Northern Ireland's Health Minister, Robin Swan, spoke to Minister Simon Harris uh, yesterday evening. The public health authorities on both sides of the border and total are working very closely together. Because, uh, as Michael McBride said last night, he said this virus, in fact, no virus recognises boundaries or borders. So he said there's a very active uh, tracing investigation investigation underway. Um, for example, the airline will look at the, the rows, uh, the seats uh, immediately beside this passenger, uh, the rows in front or behind, because in terms of contact, um, those most at risk are, are, are people who have come within two metres uh, mm. and for a period of, say, 15 minutes or longer. Uh, so those are, are considered high risk. So there's a frantic effort underway at the moment to try to identify individuals who might fall into that high-risk bracket, and those individuals will then be contacted. Uh, and our understanding from last night, Brian, is that if they are contacted, if more uh, cases are confirmed, uh, the media will then be informed, but not beforehand. Just in relation to the flight, then, does, does that suggest that uh, it's, it's not the plan to contact everybody who was on that particular flight. Uh, that, that we're not sure of because uh, the, what they said is anyone who can into close contact, as I say, within two metres or from droplets, say from sneezing and possibly from hand-to-hand contact but if you think, if, if you're a nurse hostess on, on the plane serving cups of tea coffee and sandwiches um, and you come into direct contact and you then go to other passengers and serve them tea and coffee, um, we're not, it's not sure yet whether or not they'll have to trace all of the passengers on the plane but certainly the indications were last night uh, they will focus on those who come into close contact because they're considered high risk whereas others who were further away and didn't have any kind of direct contact are considered low risk. Right. Um, clearly still a lot of unanswered questions a- at this stage but just a final question Vincent about the preparedness of health authorities in Northern Ireland uh, to deal with this their, their capacity the number of uh, ICU beds uh, is- isolation units that sort of thing <coughs> have they been able to give any information in that regard? Uh, they, they, they have said for the past couple of weeks, and they said, in fact, in, in a briefing just yesterday, they, they say that they are confident they have sufficient um, systems in place that they can deal with this. Michael right. McBride stressed that there's been ongoing work behind the scenes for a number of weeks now, um, directly with the British government in London, with the devolved administrations in Scotland and Wales, and okay. with the public health authorities uh, in, in the Republic as well. He said they're all working together. He said they are working collectively. And he said he's confident they are on top of this. He repeatedly said, Brian, that members of the public should not be overly concerned. He said he doesn't want to say or do anything that will cause unnecessary public um 
panic uh, okay. or anxiety. Uh, as I say, the, the message repeatedly was that he believes there are robust systems in place. They have all the systems that they need, and going forward, they're confident they can contain right. any outbreak. But he said at this stage, because this this piece was self-isolated and contacted doctors herself, they believe that the risk to others is low. In fact, okay. uh, he said at one point he believes the risk to the general public is low at this stage. Very good, Vincent Kearney. Thank you very much indeed for that. 20 past seven. There's a storm coming, another one. This one's called Storm Jorge, and our own Jorge, our science and environment correspondent, Senior Lee, is here to tell us all about it. George, when and where? Um, Saturday. Uh, there, there are warnings, uh, orange status warnings, uh, issued by Met Aaron for Saturday, starting Saturday morning at uh, 6 o'clock, and that would be affecting the counties uh, Kerry, Clare, Mayo and Galway. And then from 12 o'clock, uh, a little bit above those counties, you're looking at uh, Donegal, Leitrim and Sligo, and they will remain in place until about, uh, I think it's uh, 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. So a lot of rain expected and a very high winds expected throughout Saturday, particularly affecting the western coast, but we'll feel it all over the country. So the whole country is going to get wind and rain over the weekend? Yes, this looks like a pretty big storm coming in. Now, the the the, the size of the storm, we have lots of storms, obviously, it, it, and we have a National Emergency Coordination Group called because of the impact of this storm. It isn't so much that they're worried about it, like uh, Storm Ophelia or anything like that, it's that the country is already saturated, and this is going to bring a lot of rain, and the big issue is going to be the, uh, how are you going to handle the flood risks so the uh, national or, or, or yeah the, 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 the directorate for fire and emergency management which is a subdivision of the department of housing planning and local government they've been watching on a daily basis throughout the month what's been going on with the bad weather and they've now got to a point where they're particularly worried that this a large amount of rain that's coming on top of what already we have in the country which hasn't been cleared could cause very serious problems and the high winds could cause big issues on the coastal areas too. Now we'll be talking to the chair of the National Emergency Coordination Group later in the programme. As you mentioned, we've had record rainfall uh, in February already and uh, not only has that not cleared, there are parts of the country that are still flooded and are now going to receive more rainfall. Yeah. When you look at the numbers throughout February, and February isn't finished at all, like in one day, for instance, at Knock Airport, uh, I think it was the 8th of February, they had 50% of their usual monthly rain just in one day, and we've had lots of rain since then. When you look throughout the country, you can see that the west of the country, particularly Mayo, has had really heavy rain, record-breaking rain. And we've had record-breaking rain even on the east coast in Phoenix Park. If you went back to 1850, you still wouldn't find in the records a wetter February and it's not over yet and it's the same records been set in terms of the records and the data which is there in 10 out of 25 of the main weather stations that Met Aaron has so this has been a really unusual wet month, three named storms as you said, uh, which is really unusual because February is usually one of the driest one, one of the lowest in terms of rainfall months. So will there be more help for the areas that are going to be worst affected by flooding? I think it's a matter of making sure that everything is put in place to minimise 
the risks that are there to give people information to make sure that the, all of the services which are there to help the clean up and to prepare to nail everything down before the storm hits that that's put together the people who the kind of organisations you'll have in the National Emergency Coordination Group this morning include the Civil Defence the Army the Gardaí the ESB Irish Water uh, the Emergency Services all of them all local authorities with plenty of divisions in that all government departments all agencies so really they're going to sit down they know that this is a, a, a particular risk and they're going to see what can we do to minimise uh, the risks here to make sure people are as safe as possible and most important what about the clean up because we are still trying to clean up from the previous two storms um, Kira and Dennis it hasn't been cleared at all in the Midlands as you know down along the Shannon so if you add to that where does it end up where does where will the spill end up and how high will these floods go but they're particularly worried why so many storms so fast well med Aaron says that there's a thing called a so uh, a stratospheric polar vortex uh, combining with something in the troposphere and that this is the result of this has led to very very wet weather coming our way with the North Atlantic Oscillation and this has been particularly strong this month so it's one of those things that, that, that I suppose it happens from time to time. Polar vortex I think was also a term which I got used to during the period of the very heavy snow and I remember with the United States last year I think they had really really cold weather and polar vortex was, uh, was, uh, was blamed there so I think this may or may not we'll have to wait in time to see whether or not it's part of overall climate change we don't know that but certainly this is the, this is why uh, this is particularly wet this month it's something that is unusual for February and it's now got to the very worrying stage we deserve a good summer after all this George Lee Environment and Science Correspondent thank you for that almost 25 past 7 <laughs> And uh, in case it had escaped your attention, today is Pancake Tuesday. So uh, uh, Pascal uh, Sheehy has been dispatched uh, to uh, sample some uh, pancakes, which are even as we speak, uh, Pascal, being prepared this morning. Well, Brian, you should know a svelte athlete like me. I can't sample any of these pancakes, but I'm here with a big group of people at Café Vilo. Uh, on Sullivan's Key and Cork and from 7 o'clock this morning they have been sampling all sorts of exotic pancakes uh, chefing for us here at Café Vilo this morning is Chef Mark Rose uh, we have food historian uh, food and culinary historian Regina Sexton with us from University College Cork and all of the proceeds this morning are going to Pieta House in Cork uh, and with us from Pieta House is Darren Coyle Guard. We'll be hearing from all three of them in a few minutes' time. But first to the people who were sampling those pancakes this morning, not me, Brian. Let's hear what they had to say to us a little earlier. Oh, it was delicious. It was very, very good, yeah. What did you have? Um, lemon and sugar, actually. Nice and simple, but beautiful. What's your favourite type of pancake? Um, I like the... Um, American fluffy buttermilk pancakes with maple syrup and bacon. Uh, I like them with maybe a bit of strawberry or something like that is what I'd like. Uh, uh, I'm not one for a bitter one so the lemon will be put cast aside. Just, uh, lemon and sugar. I just I like them simple. Straight and traditional. Yeah. And what about the other array of exotic fruits we have here? What do you think of that? I just I wouldn't be a fan. Small bit of sugar, bit of lemon, lovely. Very traditional. Yeah, perfect. Just the way it started today. Nutella and um, strawberries. And tell us how much you like pancakes. I love them. 
So, Chef Mark Rose, you're responsible for these this morning. When I was growing up, it was very traditional. It was the sugar, lemon juice. Maybe if we got lucky, some Lyle's golden syrup. Describe the array that you have in front of you here this morning. Well, we have the classic lemon and sugar, as you just said, but we also have some fresh fruit, strawberries, blueberries, quite popular. Marshmallows, Nutella, always a big seller with the kids at lunchtime. Not so in the morning. It's all about um, sugar and lemon, as you've seen there in the last hour. And you've been busy here this morning, not just here in the cafe. Tell us about the deliveries that have gone out from here. Well, we've a lot of takeaway t- today. We've got KPMG, who have ordered 200 pancakes that just gone out half an hour ago. We also have Autobox, uh, who have ordered over 100. And we have Sober Lane, who have ordered in 50. And you never know, there might be a couple more as well as the day is out. And food historian and culinary historian Regina Sexton from UCC, where did the idea for Pancake Tuesday come from? It's tied to uh, the Catholic Church and Christian observance because tomorrow is the start of a big fasting period for Christians being Lent. And fasting and feasting go hand in hand always. The partner of fast is feasting. So for the Lenten period, uh, traditionally and uh, by the rule of the church, uh, people were forbidden to eat meat and dairy produce, and that includes eggs. So rather than waste milk, uh, cream, buttermilk, eggs, uh, you made up this really quick and delicious dish uh, of pancakes, pancakes. And it was and, simple as that. And they were uh, related to your marriage prospects as well. How were, so? you see, because um, we're not just in Shrove Tuesday. We're actually in a big uh, section season of the year. So it's the end of kind of the carnival uh, and festivities and so on. Um, but also in the Irish mind, since after Christmas, they've been thinking about making matches. Uh, marital matches. Now that's going to be for- forbidden during the Lenten period so this is the last chance to do a marriage. To, to, get, to get married. And Darren Coygard of Pieta House, you're here. How important are little fundraisers like this to you and where does the money go? They are absolutely vital. We receive about 80% of our funding from the public. So every little fundraiser that um, is done is just absolutely Big, big oh, it's after every every penny counts. Um, if I was to put a cost on someone to go through the service, it costs around a thousand euro per person to go through Pieta House. So, so it's money well spent. Well, I can tell you, it's a cold, damp morning in Cork. People are coming in here; they're cold, but they're leaving with that little glow, thanks to all of the pancakes here at Cafe Velo. Happy. Pancake Tuesday, back to you in Dublin, Brian. Thanks very much, Deep Pascal. I think you should treat yourself today, just just for one occasion. Maybe just the once. And uh, Maybe as your, just the once. your guest was saying, it's a, it's a feast followed by a fast for Lent, so you can make up for it uh, in the next uh, couple Indeed. of weeks. Indeed. And, Thanks. and we're, we're filling the collection box here at the same stuff. time, all, right. all for a good cause. Pascal Thank and you. Cork. Thanks very much indeed for that, Pascal. Five to nine. Campaigners against sexual violence have welcomed the conviction of the former Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein, for many years one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, was found guilty of sexual assault and rape. He was cleared of two other charges, including predatory sexual assault. He's due to be sentenced in two weeks' time. With us is Nolene Blackwell, who's the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. What's your reaction to these verdicts? Yes, so this is significant because in some ways we are seeing for maybe the first time a measure of accountability 
inequality within the justice system where people who before looked like they were invincible because of their power and their privilege and their capacity to say to other people, you'll never work in this town again, as was kind of seen of him. That that, that shield they had of invincibility is uh, cracked, at least. Uh, it is long overdue. Uh, sexual harassment in the workplace is a real Uh, thing, not only in Hollywood but in Ireland as well, but very often people felt they couldn't call it out. This shows that not only could they call it out, as they did through the Me Too movement, a lot of them, but but prosecutors took it seriously. Somebody was prosecuted and somebody is convicted. So so that accountability is important. As you say, most of us don't work in Hollywood, but abuse can happen anywhere. How big an issue is sexual violence in the workplace? Yes. Yeah, so as, as far as we know, it is a very significant issue, but it is very underreported because what happens is that if somebody complains about it, they are very often seen as the whistle Lord, the person causing the trouble and they are very often uh, of the view that it is in their own interest to lie low, get on with it, particularly for people who are self-employed, as all of these actors and actresses were. The same will could happen here in any profession where people are kind of sole traders, could happen with journalists, where people have to go in and where they are dependent on the patronage of somebody else for their work. In those cases, there is a potential for abuse. A lot of those hiring such people do not abuse their power. But Weinstein shows that people did and that the more it was silenced, the worse it got. So I suppose there is something of a shift happening where people are saying it's not good enough. We won't get on with this. And it needed brave prosecutors, prosecutors who a few years before would not prosecute Weinstein for all sorts of reasons, possibly, are now at a stage where they're saying that they will. Um, and it also needed really good investigative journalism mm. to, to, make a, uh, to make the first case against it. But having said that, most of all, it needed the people who were prepared to be vilified as they were, those who reported, those who gave evidence, their characters, the, the defence tried to rip them to yeah, shreds. That's a, that's a very good point because both in sections of the media and as you say in court, women who did come forward, they did find themselves in a difficult position because they found questions being 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 put in their direction. Well, why did you continue yes. to associate with him? Why didn't you come forward before now? Etc. Et exactly. Cetera. And it shows the complexity and the power, um, I suppose, dynamics between people who are in the position of being assaulted and those who are carrying out the assaults. It is so regularly the case that someone has to continue a relationship with somebody or other uh, because uh, because of their their livelihood, um, their uh, family relationship, whatever. And in this case, this showed more than anything that you could have a situation where people had to continue to defer to somebody more powerful mm. and at the same time did not forget that they were raped or sexually assaulted. And again, it's just one of those things we have to get used to. In these cases, it's intimate abuse of power. It's where somebody has no great choice uh, and but to, but to continue uh, the relationship. But that does not mean they were not raped. And it does not mean that the person who carried out the rape or the sexual abuse was wrong, uh, wrong to do it morally and wrong to do it now we know it. In law. Nolene Blackwell, thank you very much for joining us thank this you, morning. Rachel.
global sea levels could rise by half a metre over the coming decades if an Antarctic glacier the size of Florida, which has few other piers in terms of size anywhere in the world, continues to melt into the ocean. That's the warning from the British Antarctic Survey, one of whose members is in Ireland this week as part of a lecture series on the issues affecting the region and the technology being used to map what's happening. Andrew Fleming is remote sensing manager with the British Antarctic Survey, one of the team that's been examining what's happening to the Thwaites Glacier and he's with us here in studio. You were lecturing last night, I know Andrew, at Dublin City University and we welcome you to the programme this morning. This this glacier, it's, a, it's enormous, it's a huge reservoir for a vast amount of water and if it melts obviously, uh, as you, as you uh, suggest, it would have very serious consequences for sea levels. Correct, it, it is huge. People may be familiar with a glacier being a narrow river of ice running down the side of a mountain but this thing is, is huge by comparison. It's 100 miles wide, as you say, about the size of Florida or the size of, the, of, of Great Britain and, uh, and, and contains a huge amount of, of water if it was to melt and, and, and contribute to the, uh, into the ocean. At the moment, it contributes about 0.1 millimetre of um, global sea level rise at, at per year. But that might not sound like a lot, but mm-hmm. for a single glacier, that's 4% of the, of the total amount of global sea level rise. So it's a really important um, um, glacier to keep an eye on. And that's what you've been doing. And in fact, as, as a result of warming temperatures, you've been able to uh, actually get underneath the glacier and, and examine it in ways that hasn't been examined before. Exactly. So the glacier is known to be going under, uh, undergoing um, some rapid changes in the last 30 years. We've, uh, we've observed it changing. It's sped up, it's got thinner and it's lost mass. We've been able to monitor all of that using satellites and that's the sort of technology that we rely on now. Um, but the other bit of understanding is that it's not air temperatures are not just air temperatures that are um, causing it to speed up and to start melting faster. It's the warming ocean temperatures. So one of the things that we were interested in doing was understanding how the ocean was affecting it from below, and that involved drilling through it. Mm-hmm. So uh, just last month, which coincided with the 200th anniversary of um, Bransfield's first sighting of the Antarctic, um, there was a successful part of this five-year project, which was to drill through the ice shelf and um, put a robot um, instrumentation underneath to get the first sighting, first measurements, um, sediment cores, other observations from underneath the ice sheet to get a, like proper data on how the ocean is affecting it. Because there's the, there's the glacier itself, as I understand it, which is uh, much of which is on land, um, but then there's the ice sheet uh, 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 off the coast, vast ice sheet, which actually helps to hold it in place. Is that right? So, so the the ice sheet on land flows down and into the ocean and then spreads out and and floats away and eventually breaks off into numerous um, icebergs. Which is a natural process. Absolutely natural process um, but if you, um, as we've seen in other parts of the Antarctic, if you lose large pieces of ice shelf then it can cause a acceleration of the ice that's on the land and going back to the Thwaites glacier, the risk here or the concern here is that it's speeding up and it's an unstable glacier. The way it's configured underneath means that there is a chance that there would be a runaway collapse of the glacier because of the way that the ocean is um, is, is eroding it from below. I mean, clearly a half a metre rise in sea levels would be very serious. It would threaten uh, coastal areas r- right, around, right around the world, in this country and elsewhere. Uh, are, are, are you in a position to be able to say how rapidly this is this is happening if, if action isn't taken to try and arrest uh, global warming? So that, that question is exactly what we need to try and understand properly is reduce the uncertainty so we have a better handle on how fast this is likely to happen. So we're talking about 
um, timescales of either happening on decades or or a few hundred um, hundred thousand years. So um, um, it's it's a question of how quickly is this going to happen. We're uncertain at the moment, and then and therefore we need to reduce the uncertainty by by measuring it and monitoring it properly. And can can it be uh, can it be contained? Can it be can the melting be reduced at this stage? No, the, the the melting is likely to continue. It's a question of how how fast and rapid that that progresses in the current scenario. So, no. Andrew Fleming, there we leave it. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. That was Andrew Fleming from the British Antarctic Survey. Tomorrow, February the 29th, will be Leap Day, the calendar oddity that occurs every four years. The extra day is added to keep our calendar aligned with the Earth's seasons. Our reporter, Jill Stedman, has been taking a look at some of the traditions associated with Leap Year. It is leap year, you know, in Ireland. A woman can propose to... I'm not going to Dublin. It's an age-old tradition that dates back long before the 2010 movie Leap Year. Legend has it that it was St. Bridget who complained to Patrick that a woman should be able to ask for her man's hand in marriage. Kelly Fitzpatrick is a lecturer in Irish Celtic Studies and Folklore in University College Dublin. She first gave the magical number of seven years, that every seven years that that could happen. And Bridget then bargained him down to every four years. So it fits very well into the leap year timescale. The legend spread around the world. In the US, during the early 1900s, postcards began circulating, depicting women asking, even begging men to marry them. Professor Fitzpatrick said this is when the tradition really took off. And we see a number of very colourful and very fun postcards uh, entering into the 1907-1908 leap year, where we see a number of women uh, looking ready and set to pounce on their man. Uh, and arguably, you could see that it is from this uh, um, entrance of, of material culture that the legend of women asking their men for marriage, this kind of ladies' privilege, as it was seen, uh, entered into a much wider circle and became accepted. But is the tradition still alive today? Would the women of Ireland pop the question on Leap Day? And would the men say yes? Here's what some people in Dublin had to say. I suppose if I thought he would never ask, then I might do it, but um, no. There's no point in really waiting for any, any event when it, comes to, when it comes to love in that regard, so just propose whenever, girls and boys alike. Why should it be the men? proposing all the time. I think it's a, a nice step to take and in the age we're living in now, why not? Love gives you wins. Um, when you're alive you do whatever you would never think you'd do before. So we'll see. Ask me that in 10 years. <laughs> I think it's good. I wouldn't do it because I'm shy. But <laughs> You'd encourage others to. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love it if a woman proposed to me. She got. To, I'd love it if a woman got down on her knee and proposed to me be something different yeah definitely it's not all about proposals though there's often been a little bit of mystique about leap year babies it's quite divided in that um, some people feel that leap year babies are really lucky and other people feel they're 
not so lucky. Professor Mike Geary is a consultant at the Rotunda Hospital. He's brought many leap year babies into the world. Well, leap year babies obviously by their nature come every four years on the 29th of February. And from our point of view, caring for mums and dads coming in and mums having the babies... It's a little bit of novelty, uh, it's a little bit of fun in the discussion, but of course the, the care and the, um, and the expertise is exactly the same. For those expecting a baby tomorrow, Professor Geary says they should think ahead to future birthday celebrations. Over the years people have kind of laughed about this and have said, oh my baby's born on the 29th of February, um, they only have a birthday every four years. And of course some of these kids will have their birthday celebration on the 28th of Feb and some on the 1st of March. But the curiosity of course is that some people will, will laugh about it when they get to age 64 and say, well I'm really only sweet 16 as opposed to 64. <laughs> and, uh, so it's a bit of fun. Those born on the 29th of February are nicknamed leapers or leaplings. There's not that many people, you know, I, I don't really know anybody myself that has a leap year birthday. And uh, anytime I tell anyone that I am a leap year baby, people are fascinated with this, you know, so I suppose it is special. Cathy Nevin from County Mayo now loves her special birthday, but that wasn't always the case. Well, it was in the beginning, when I was young, it was very difficult to know why my birthday wasn't on the calendar. Tomorrow, Cathy will be celebrating at home in County Mayo, but in four years' time, she plans to head to the leap year capital of the world. There is an actual town in America called Antony where the leap year babies all descend on the leap year, and I hope for the next leap year that I will get there. That would be nice to see everybody else who's born on the leap year. And happy birthday to all those celebrating their birthday uniquely tomorrow. That's leap year baby Cathy Nevin from County Mayo ending that report by Jill Stedman. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.